West Virginia University is a renowned Research One institution with over 200 graduate and professional programs to choose from. Find more information about how you can explore your passion at graduateadmissions.wvu.edu. Welcome to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond, a podcast supported by West Virginia University's Provost's Office of Graduate Education and Life. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy Coronia, a teaching associate professor with the Department of English at West Virginia University. Today, I'll be speaking with Joshua H. Carr, a service assistant professor for the WVU Center for Excellence in STEM Education and a PhD candidate in educational theory and practice with WVU's College of Education and Human Services. Recently, he was awarded a WVU Distinguished Doctoral Scholarship for his dissertation work. Welcome, Joshua. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Nancy. I really appreciate it. And that award still feels weird. So, Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we get right started right in with your research? Can you talk a little bit about it and how it intertwines with your current teaching? Absolutely. Um, And uh, I think it'll take a little bit of, it'll take a moment for me to articulate it just because I think that a lot of folks aren't necessarily um, familiar with educational research. Um, So my research currently, it's focused on actually responding to various critiques of practice-based teacher education, and I consider myself a practice-based teacher educator, um, specifically mathematics teacher education. And these critiques revolve around the argument that this area of teacher education decontextualizes teaching. Uh, It draws upon narrow conceptualizations of teacher practice, and then also peripheralizes equity and justice. And Largely, I find that these critiques are well-founded, which is why I'm responding to them, Um, because many of the pedagogies that are used in secondary mathematics teacher education, they tend to only contextualize the mathematics being done. And so, therefore, when we present them to teacher candidates, they're asked to respond to teaching moments without any understanding of the students that are in this scenario, the school, the community, the environment constructed. And therefore, we're treating race, class, gender, sexuality, disability, and all of their intersections as unimportant to understanding uh, how to teach. Um, But in reality, everything that you do as a teacher, the places, the people, the moment in general, these are essential for knowing how to respond and understanding what's going on. So to attempt to address this, I I build off existing frameworks of practice-based teacher education pedagogies by creating what's called representations, decompositions, and approximations of practice. But I seek to develop them in a way where the context that is represented um, more fully, and also they're centered around what I call discretionary moments of teaching. And so these pedagogies, they work to contextualize a teaching moment across multiple dimensions. And so while the pedagogies I designed, they they still help teacher candidates understand the mathematics and the tasks that's happening and learn how to orchestrate a whole class mathematical discussion. They also use these discretionary moments as the focal moment. And so these are moments where a 
teacher has the discretion to either reproduce unjust and inequitable social patterns or to actually interrupt these patterns through their activity. And so like some examples of those moments might be the way that bodies are controlled within classrooms, um, maybe responding to explicit derogatory marks towards the LGBTQ community or addressing students' behaviors. Um, So my research focuses on the design process for these pedagogies but also their implementation and their implications for teacher learning. Um, Within my research, I actually advocate for an expanded framework for teacher learning. I think that we need to view it a little bit more broadly than what it currently is. So I um, advocate for dimensions of teacher learning that are both practice-based and then also explicit dimensions that are justice-based. To the second part of your question about how my teaching and research align, yeah, they like they can't really be untangled because my teaching is my research and my research is my teaching. So yeah, actually the pedagogies that I have designed for my dissertation there, they were used within a course that I co-taught in spring 2021. Um, And since then I've been trying to explore how pedagogies like this can be incorporated throughout a teacher preparation program, thinking about how we can use these to understand the resources that teacher candidates have at various stages. So that way we could design targeted learning experience for them based off of that. Did you have any experience that made you say, this is the research that I want to do? What drew you to this kind of research? So, I mean, I think that largely, I mean, it's a compilation of experiences for sure. Um, one of the more formative ones or what at least brought me to practice-based teacher education in the first place um, was doing a mentored teaching experiences with my um, advisor, Dr. Matt Campbell. Um, So he teaches a math methods course here at the university where, yeah, it has a lot of these things of, of representation, decomposition, and approximations of practice. So I had experiences with those within that context. And then specifically, we had a course um, from within my coursework where we read an article that was critiquing practice-based education. And I remember reading it and feeling super passionately about it. Um, And then the conversation that unfolded in class was really interesting. And yeah, it's just gone from there, essentially. That's great that you really felt inspired just from what was happening in your own learning through your own classroom experience. That's really wonderful. So I want to shift a little bit because we're, you know, we've entered the second year of of a world with COVID, right? How do you think that COVID has affected our youngest learners? You know, you're a a teacher right now and you're teaching math. So how have you seen it affect our youngest learners? Yeah, so I actually felt quite underqualified to answer this question. So actually what I did, I'm glad you provided beforehand, I reached out to some local elementary school teachers and some teacher candidates that I know that are in elementary schools, and then also some distant colleagues to try to like include their voices as I attempt to respond to this. That's great. Thank you. And so I think that we can talk about this question in a lot of ways. And one of those ways that we see being amplified right now is this effect that the pandemic has had on student learning, which Um, some of that rhetoric is taken up in this term called learning loss. And so students currently may not be coming into classrooms with the skills that we're used to or have been normed for classroom, but I would advocate for people to push against this learning loss rhetoric 
because in some of the reasons for this is because like the conceptualization of learning loss, it's based on narrow conceptualizations of learning. Oh, wow. Students have certainly learned the past two years. It just might, might not be what we've traditionally expected. And so I feel like this uses kind of a deficit point of view on student learning. Secondly, as uh, Dr. Horn at Vanderbilt, who actually is one of the co-authors on the paper that inspired me for my dissertation, she puts it that the rhetoric of learning loss has profit written all over it because oh, wow. this, this framing is opening up opportunities for corporations to financially capitalize by selling products to schools, um, which is additionally fueling the conversation. Um, so as far if from my point of view and the people I spoke to, as far as the, how the pandemic has actually affected our learners in schools, they've suffered two years of traumatic experiences. And for a huge number of them, they've experienced a loss of life. So many students are going to be carrying these experiences of the past two years with them for a really long time. So what I would like to advocate and hope for is that this becomes our focus and that we divert and invest resources into the health and wellness of our most vulnerable students. That's a really beautiful statement. And I like this idea of don't look at it that they weren't learning, weren't learning the things maybe that we've normalized at those stages, but it doesn't mean they weren't learning and that we need to focus on the experience and in some cases, the tragedies that they've lived through. What would you say to teachers? You know, um, they've done a lot of pivoting in the last two years. So what would you say to teachers, not only about learning, but also about mental health and and what they need to do in the classroom Mm -hmm. and how they need to take care of themselves as well? Yeah, that last one's a tough one. Um, So I think that one of the main things I would talk about is to help to try and open up spaces with create space within your classroom for for learning to happen and 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 to do that like to recognize that learning takes an infinite amount of forms and also the prop the the process for learning are just as numerous so i guess questioning how the lessons that we design and teach either open or close space available for students to grow as learners in multiple ways and and to play with their identities as learners. So for example, like in my Mary of mathematics, specifically high school mathematics, Mm -hmm. there's traditionally narrow conceptualization of what counts as being good as mathematics and thereby what counts as being successful in learning mathematics. So, you know, you have to always be correct. Speed is super important problems are viewed in a singular manner with a singular process um, and that we frame mathematics without context. And and all of those close down the space that are available for students to demonstrate who they are and and work on their identities and learners. So I guess I want educators to begin to or continue to, because a lot of people are doing this work, uh, to question how, how, what is happening within their classroom creates and nurtures a space for each and every student to develop as learners. This is an interesting thing that you're bringing up about math as being seen as closed with the answers and you're fast because I'm in a department of English and I've often had students say to me who come from high school, well, math is easy. There's only one answer. Um, and, and I, and they always think that composition is based on how I feel about their writing rather than about certain structures of what makes a good argument. Do you feel that math gets a bad rap as the one answer kind of discipline when it, when what you're suggesting is that 
it's much more creative, much more imaginative, and that students have an opportunity to open up as learners rather than to be like, I'm just going to be fast and good at this. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it, it certainly does get a bad rap, but I think also that bad rap is founded in some ways because if the way that it's been taught traditionally is a, a one-way thing, then that's all we can see it as. Um, so I think that things can certainly change to where it is more creative and is actually more like the work of what mathematicians would do, like actually playing with things. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that the, 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 the viewpoint as it of mathematics can change. It's just a matter of, uh, doing that, uh, the check on ourselves, I think. <laughs> so how do you approach the practice of pedagogy when you're training instructors and teachers? Yeah, so I'll speak specifically to my work with teacher candidates. Um, So one of my main foci is on modeling for them the practice that I would like for them to take into their own classrooms. That's paramount for me. Mm. It's not just what you it's not just about what you teach, but maybe more importantly, how you teach it. So I seek to build relationships and create communities within each course because this enables teacher candidates to consider the possibilities of community building and what it can do. Um, But also within doing that, we're able to look at the strategies that I employ and then consider how they might transition into high school classrooms. This also means that I, I use routines and norms that can be applied. So like one routine that comes to mind is this fairly popular mathematical routine of notice and wonder where you just ask students, what do you notice and what do you wonder about a thing, whatever it happens to be. And so I repurpose this for teacher education so that we can study teaching. So like we can look at something that's about teaching and just ask, what do we notice and what do we wonder? And it opens up space for all types of learners, um, people at different stages. Um, They can be drawn to whatever they like and, uh, and apply things that are from their own experiences. And then lastly, within my modeling, I also seek to like disrupt sacred practices of teaching and learning. Can you say more about that? Sure. (laughs) So um, one of those is like grades and grading. Um, So for example, in a class, I had the pleasure of teaching last semester. The entire class, um, it essentially had no grades. It was portfolio based. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no, there were no grades related to the traditional things that college students are graded on. So like attendance, homework, doing reading reflections, writing papers, et cetera. And so instead we focused on building a community of autonomy and one where we were accountable to each other. There, There were 12 students in that class. And so without grades for attendance, there were three total absences for the entire semester. And it met twice a week. And then, and that's total 12 students, 30 or 30 class meetings. That's how many absences there were. And then also without doing graded reading reflection assignments before each class. And we had readings for every single class. I I actually pulled a couple quotes because I wanted to share them. Um, One student reported in their end of course survey that quote, I normally don't do the readings for courses. Maybe I'll skim them at best. There was only one reading that I didn't fully finish before before class for this course. And then also in response to the grading system in its entirety, another student said, quote, I won't lie. 
I'm not 100% sure how to answer this question because I haven't felt that aware of grades in this class. Like, oh, we're being graded. Huh. I kind of forgot. I was too focused on actually learning and being curious and creative instead of wasting my time fretting about grades. So through focusing on modeling and considering the things that I would like for them to take into their own classrooms, I hope to demonstrate and make teaching practices possible because a lot of times we, we talk about things and don't understand how they could be made possible. And so I want to do that. So this class was for teacher candidates. Correct. So they were graduate students. Um, so no, they were undergrad students. It was, um, yeah, predominantly juniors, I think. That is awesome. And yeah. do you feel like you're going to repeat this process again with larger student classes? I sure hope so. Now, granted, in, in my, my, uh, my line of work, the, the classes don't get much larger than okay. 20-ish or whatever. But, but yes, of course, I would love to. It's a very exciting process. Ungrading has so many different variations and nuances to it. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting to hear that you just designed the whole thing and then sort of you were the facilitator, but you got out of the way of their learning and you found that they really engaged on a very deep level. Yeah, it's I yeah, I have a hard time looking back at the class because it makes me super emotional just because of what we were able to accomplish in that in that context. Yeah. And was this a face-to-face class or was it online? It was face-to-face. It was face-to-face. Yeah. That's really awesome. Let's take a break for a moment to hear from WVU's Provost's Office of Graduate Education and Life. The Hazel Ruby McQuain Graduate Scholarship provides recipients with financial support for graduate study. More information about eligibility, benefits, and the application process can be found at graduateeducation.wvu.edu. Applications are due March 28th. Welcome back to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy Caronia, and I'm speaking with Josh Carr about his work as a teacher and teacher trainer. Thanks, Josh. So can you talk to me a little bit about what's the best part of being a teacher and a mentor? This was the easiest question to answer because it's the students. Every single time it's the students. And I feel like what you put in, they give you back a thousand times over. Um, Some of the best parts I think is like being there for them, no matter what, maybe when no one else is there for them. Then also like largely stemming from my focus on building relationships. I really appreciate when a student feels comfortable enough to come to me in a, in a moment where they're distressed or they need something. And especially as a teacher educator, where the work of learning to teach is so deeply personal, Yes, knowing that people are comfortable in their ability to seek out advice and assistance from you. I think that's a really important feeling. And I was only supposed to list one thing, but I have one more. <laughs> no, no, as many as you I love, te- I love teaching so much. Um, <laughs> I, I, I simply love learning with them. So helping them develop as they simultaneously do the same to you without knowing it. So one of the best parts is knowing that the actions that you put in today are going to have ripple effects for a long time to come. You might not get to experience those effects, and that is a super difficult pill to learn to swallow. But just keeping that perspective in mind is incredibly important, just knowing that it's doing something 
So anecdote, I just ran into a, a past high school student last week um, wow. at a local coffee shop and they were floored when I knew their name. Um, I asked if they were still pursuing their career in cooking, uh, <laughs> commented. I remember their ability to precisely name each and every dinosaur. <laughs> and so I was talking to them about that and they were just shocked. And then they mentioned that they've been able to use some of the math that I taught them, but then they thanked me for like helping them feel like they belonged. And for me, that's what it's, that's what it's about. It seems to me like you understand that education is about curiosity and collaboration. That's the biggest thing for me. And I have the same experience with students when I see them. I don't always remember their names, but I've been teaching for 20 years. It's a tough one. But I do remember their papers. <laughs> I remember what they wrote about. And they'll say, how do you remember that? Yeah, that's and lovely. Say, because it's it was an important part of who you are. Mm -hmm. So for me, I want to remember that about you. Yeah. And it seems to me like you have that kind of connection with teaching and with understanding being that we are lifelong learners. We're teaching because we want to continue to learn. And I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I think that's beautiful. The, the paper connection, knowing what that person wrote, that's really, I, I love that. So now what's one, one thing, like you're now in graduate school, but you're also a surface professor. So what's one thing that you would have liked to known at the beginning of graduate education that it sort of took you a little bit of trial and error to figure out? Yeah. And it's a wonderful question. Um, Thank you. I think that the first is that every interest that you have or that you develop as a grad student doesn't have to be encapsulated within your dissertation. I struggled with this for yes. quite some time. So like, you know, throughout my first couple of years of coursework, I was collecting all these interests, all these ideas. Yeah. And then I was trying to like smash them into a single idea for my dissertation. And it wasn't until um, Dr. John Balliard assigned us a task in one of our courses to write a trajectory paper right. on a researcher of our choice. So we kind of had to read pieces of work from this person throughout their career. And I chose Dr. Magdalene Lampert and I was reading through her work that, and it was then that I realized that she's done so many different things that her dissertation was just a launching point for that. And that her, that, that our interests can grow and evolve over time. So I'd like to say thank you to Jonna for her incredible work as a teacher and scholar and for helping me come to that realization, because up until that point, um, if I wouldn't have done that assignment, I don't know that I'd, I don't think I'd have the dissertation that I have today and I wouldn't I, be on this podcast. Right. Well, and I have to tell you, when I was in grad school, a lot of my graduate faculty would say the best dissertation is a done dissertation. Absolutely. This is, and this is not the best thing you're ever going to write. It's the first thing you're ever going to write. Yes. And in a sustained manner. And that helped me so much to recognize that I had other things to do. And that, like you're saying, my ideas would evolve. I would get smarter about things. Yes, I would yes. understand that things would go in a different direction. It's so important. And it's and you're fortunate that you discovered that while you were still at the beginning process of the dissertation. <laughs> yeah, incredibly fortunate. <laughs> so now you're very busy as a teacher. You know, you're very busy as a teacher trainer. What do you do when you're not working? You know, in other words, what do you do for fun? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So when I'm not working, I'm largely running around with my wonderful wife, Tiffany, and our just turned two-year-old Jonah. Um, currently, we're playing with a lot of balloons and reading tons of books. He's, he's crazy about books. Oh, that's and then getting outside now that the weather's warming up a little bit. Um, personally, I like to do anything that can get me outside. And I also really like to work with my hands. Um, it's like building and fixing things and doing home renovation projects or gardening. And I think it's, I mentioned earlier that with teaching, you don't always get to see the ripple effects that you have, but working with my hands is the exact opposite of that. Like I get to see what I've done. So it's kind of, uh, it's a a good feeling for me. (laughs) What's the last thing that you've done that you've created with your hands? So, um, we got a sensory table for our son and it came without stools and in buying just stools for this table, we're like $70 to buy some stools. And I said, nah, we're not going to do that. So I built some stools. <laughs> so you built stools for, for Jonah and for you yes. all to sit around. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Yes. That is awesome. And so it's almost planting season here in West Virginia. What in your garden, do you do a vegetable garden, flower garden, or both? Mostly vegetables, but there's definitely some flowers that happen. Is there anything else that you'd like our podcast audience to know about teaching and about the practice of teaching? Um, I think um, a parting word would be that we're all teachers in our own way. And so to consider that as, as we move through our lot, our daily happenings, right? Like even just through our embodied actions every day, we're, we're teaching something to someone and, I, I think that we all would like to teach what we would consider the right things. So, so as, as we move through our days to make sure that we are, we are doing just that. That's so, thank you for that. I always say to my students, the day that I stop learning from you is the day when I leave the classroom. Absolutely. That it has to be a back and forth. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Josh, for talking with me today. It's been a great conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Cronia. And thank you to GradLife601's podcast audience. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join in next time to GradLife601 Research and Beyond when I'll be speaking with Lauren Alexander, a doctoral student with WVU's Department of Investigative and Forensic Science and a Ruby Distinguished Doctoral Fellow. Until next time, I'm Dr. Nancy Coronio with GradLife601.